Good morning. Good morning. Uh, if you want to start turning your uh, way to Psalm 1, that's what I'll be preaching this morning, and I'll just set up using a stand here. All right, Psalm 1 is going to be our text this morning. And uh, Augustine said in his commentary on this psalm that these, uh, he said in his co- uh, the first line of his commentary on this psalm that this psalm is of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord man. And my aim uh, this morning is to convince you that he was right. Uh, and so what we're going to do, we're going to, I'm going to only preach through Psalm 1, but I want to read Psalm 1 and 2 together uh, because I believe that they're intended to be understood together. So Psalm 1 verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And in Psalm 2, it says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he uh, not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. I have a, somewhat of a background with this psalm because this is one of the passages that my dad had us memorize uh, when we were very young. And so for, for years, since I've had it memorized, since I was about 10 probably, uh, when I've read the opening line of this psalm, which says, Blessed is the man, I thought to myself that I am the man. I read myself into it. The, the psalm describes the man who meditates on the scriptures uh, day and night. And so 
the way that I understood that, I, I basically interpret it as if it said, how blessed is the man that follows the Bible reading plan. Right? I reduced the psalm uh, to essentially mean that discipline, or my own discipline, equaled blessing and prosperity. And I've had enough conversations with people in the room to know that I'm not alone in how I had previously understood the psalm. But one of the things that I was missing, and I would say there was quite a few, um, is the obvious connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And that's important because Psalm 2 is undoubtedly about Christ. In fact, two, Psalm two, uh, in fact, Psalm 2 is quoted four times in the New Testament, and they're all referring to Christ. Acts 4.25 quotes from the first two verses of Psalm 2, in reference to the persecution that Christ endured from the Jews and from the Romans and from Pilate. Acts 13.33 quotes from Psalm 2.7 in reference to the resurrection of Christ. Hebrews 1.5 and Hebrews 5.5, which by the providence of God we read this morning, also quotes from Psalm 2.7 in reference to the fact that Jesus is far superior than all created beings, even the angels, and how Jesus was appointed as high priest by his heavenly father. Psalm 2 is about the eternally begotten son of God who has been installed as king over the nations. And even though the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against him, he has been installed as king and he is king forever. So that's what Psalm 2 is about. And when you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 carefully, it becomes obvious how they are connected. I just want to show uh, briefly five things that show the connection between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And the first is, notice the lack of titles in the first two psalms. There might be titles provided by your the publisher of your Bible, but the titles that are actually a part of the actual, um, of God's word, a part of the psalm, uh, they don't start till. Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is also the first time Selah is used. So I think that this shows, which uh, pretty much all, all the commentaries agree on this, that as the Psalms were being uh, collected and put together, that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were added to the uh, beginning of the Psalter uh, to be uh, the introduction to the whole book of the Psalms. The second thing is notice the bookended blessing. Psalm 1 begins by saying, blessed is the man. And Psalm 2 ends by saying, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Then notice the similar theme of meditation in both Psalms. The blessed man med meditates on the scriptures in Psalm 1 verse 2. And then the wicked nations and people devise a vain thing in Psalm 2 1. Some of our translations say devise or plot or scheme, but that word is the same word for meditate used in Psalm 1. So the wicked people meditate on a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed. And then four, notice the similar theme of scoffing. Psalm 1, 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 2, 4 says, The Lord scoffs at them. And then five, notice the similar theme of judgment. The very end of Psalm 1 considers how 
in, uh, in the end, the way of the wicked will perish. And then the very end of Psalm 2 warns that all those who do not pay homage to the Son will perish in the way. So I think that these connections show us that there is a thread that unites these Psalms together. And it's my conviction that the thread is Christ. Psalm 1 shows us a blessed man who is sinless, obedient, and prosperous. And Psalm 2 shows us the messianic king. Psalm 1 shows us a a blessed man who is like a life-giving tree that is planted. And Psalm 2 shows us the king who is installed. Samuel Pierce said in the uh, introduction to this part of the psalm about how he's convinced that the blessed man is the God-man. He said, the second person in the incomprehensible essence had been set up by the co-equal three from everlasting to be God-man. He was covenanted for to become incarnate. He was revealed and published to the seed of the woman and the seed of Abraham. He had been seen in the form of a man by Jacob and others to whom he had been pleased to make visionary appearances. It was well known to his saints that he would one day become the true and very man who as such would be the perfection of holiness purity righteousness and integrity and the prophets therefore under the light and teaching of the holy ghost here speaks of him as blessed psalm 1 and 2 act as the double doors that show us christ as we walk into the psalms and i trust that this will become more clear as we walk through Psalm 1 together. I first want to show in the uh, first three verses that the blessed man is three things. He's sinless, he's obedient, and he's prosperous. But first we'll look at he, uh, how he was sinless. Let's look at verse 1 again. It says, He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, throughout the scriptures, uh, there are many examples of men heeding the, uh, the wicked counsel of other wicked men. Right? Adam listened to the counsel uh, of Eve uh, when she uh, took of the forbidden fruit and gave some to him. Abraham listened to the counsel of his wife when, uh, who told him to have relations with their bondservant instead of trusting that God would provide them the son that he promised. Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, listened to the crowd of, or the counsel of the, the mob, which demanded for Jesus to be crucified. The scriptures are full of examples of sinful men taking advice from sinful people. But the blessed man does not walk in it. It does not affect his way at all. And we see an example of this in Luke 4 when Jesus was led into the wilderness wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Satan offered Jesus his counsel. Satan tempted Jesus to end his suffering. He tempted him to abandon the very purpose for his coming. But Christ did what Adam should have done. Christ meditated on the law day and night. He kept the law before him. And that's why he said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and he also did not stand in the path of sinners. Though Christ did surround himself by sinners, he didn't stand in their path in participation. He was a friend of sinners, but in order to seek and save the lost, he had to be the lamb without blemish, and he had to be without sin so that he could be a new representative for us. And that's the primary point that you should take away from uh, when you're reading about the temptation of Christ. It's not just about how Jesus, as an example, shows us uh, the strategies or tactics to avoid uh, temptation, right? Like a Bible sword fight with, with Satan. We've all heard that sermon. But when we read uh, Luke 4, our hearts should be strengthened in grace as we hear about how our Savior endured all temptation and endured all suffering and yet knew no sin. Why? So that he could become sin for us. Christ did not stand in the path of sinners. And next our text says that he did, did, uh, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. In this uh, seated position, some people point out this progression of walking, uh, standing in the path of sinners, and then uh, seated, and it could uh, be a reference to a hardened position against God. But I also think this seated position can be representative of a strong association with wickedness. Uh, and for all of us, because of the fear of man, it is a strong temptation to sit among the scoffers. Because if you refuse to do so, it comes at a cost. Because what do scoffers do? They scoff. Proverbs 9.7 says that whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And whoever reproves a wicked man incurs injury. The scoffers scoff. They oppose God. They bear false witness about their neighbor. And if you refuse to take your seat among them, then they will turn on you. Peter experienced this after Jesus had been arrested just prior to the crucifixion. Peter previously had told Jesus, he said, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. But after Jesus was arrested and was being tried, it says in Luke 22:47, that having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, This man was with them too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Peter, out of fear, found himself seated among the scoffers, to and to avoid their abuse, he distanced himself from Christ and associated with the wicked. But Jesus did not avoid their abuse. He did not walk in their counsel. He did not stand in their path or take his seat among them. And because Christ stood opposed 
to the scoffers. The consequence of that is that they hurled all their abusive insults towards him. The crowds mocked him when they asked for Barabbas to be released instead of Christ. The Jews mocked him when they attributed his healing works to the works of Satan. The Romans mocked him when they placed a crown of thorns on his head. All this Christ endured because he was altogether different than the wicked and refused to take his seat among the scoffers to his own injury. And he did this because the blessed man knew no sin. Christ was sinless, but he wasn't just sinless. He was also obedient. Verse 2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law. He meditates day and night. And I want to show you that this language of of meditating on the scriptures is related to the requirements of the Davidic king. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel 7 in a moment if you want to start finding your way there. But first I want to summarize a uh, passage in Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, uh, in that passage, Moses is instructing Israel what would happen when they entered into the promised land. And specifically, uh, he's telling them what would be required of uh, Israel's future kings. So it first states in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17, what God's chosen kings were not supposed to do. And people have summarized these commands that are seen there in different ways. But one of the ways to describe them is that the kings of Israel were not to accumulate for themselves uh, weapons, women, and wealth. So they, they uh, shouldn't accumulate the, for themselves many chariots, right? Uh, a vast army, a military force. Uh, they were not to accumulate for themselves multiple wives. Remember Solomon. 700, or I think it was. Uh, they were not. They were prohibited from doing that, and then they were also prohibited from uh, accumulating much uh, silver and gold. So the way to remember is weapons, weaponry, women, and wealth. And then it explains what they should do in verse 18. It says, "Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom." Pay attention to what he should do. It says, He shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law in these statutes. The king was to keep a copy of the law before him all of his days. He should read it, learn it, meditate on it and obey it and we see the same principle uh later in the davidic covenant so turn to second samuel 7 if if you haven't already i want to spend a little time on this passage because when you understand the davidic covenant especially what is promised in it and what is required then it becomes clear that the the hope of peace and blessing in the old covenant was dependent upon a righteous king who would obey the law. 2 Samuel 7, uh, find verse 12. It says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is the Lord speaking to David here, 
He said, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you and will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So verse 12 shows us what is promised. Right? A descendant would rise up from David. He would build a house, a dwelling place for the Lord, and his kingdom would be established forever. Right? So that's what's promised. And then in verse 14, it shows us what is required. He says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. So this uh, passage, along with Deuteronomy 17, shows that there was a condition of obedience placed upon the Davidic kings. If they obeyed, they would have peace and blessing in the land. But if they disobeyed, they would receive covenant curses and discipline. And now look at verse 15. It says, But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, for your throne shall be established forever. So there's a kind of uh, a tension here between what is promised and what is required. On one hand, God promised that, that one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever, and that is a promise that he would not take away. And yet the blessing and peace from the covenant was dependent upon the obedience of the king. So how does that work? If you, if you review the, the history of the Old Testament, we see that I think it's fair to say that none of Israel's kings were obedient to the law, at least not for long. Right? There were some who did it for a time. Uh, David was described as a man after God's own heart, but at one point in his life he fell into a sin that would put any of us in, in prison. Right? Solomon... Uh, was obedient for a time and they experienced tremendous blessing in the land but like we looked at earlier the, the requirements of the king and what they should not do one of them was accumulate women and wealth he did both of those things and the obedience or lack of obedience of the king was important not just to David and his line but to all of the kingdom of Israel because in the time of the judges, when there was no king, uh, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But when God provided this promise to David, the fate of the land and its people was distilled down to one man, the Davidic king. Sam Renahan summarized the idea of the Davidic king being a representative of the old uh, covenant um, people when he said, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. If the king obeyed, blessing and stability in the land. And if the king disobeyed, judgment and instability. And unfortunately, as the book of 2 Kings makes clear, the majority of the Davidic kings over Israel and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as a result, the judgment of God came upon them for their disobedience. And this ultimately uh, came to a climax when the descendant of David uh, Zedekiah, who was the king over Judah, was captured and his sons were killed and his eyes were gouged out 
the temple was desecrated and he was taken into Babylon. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. So the people were led into captivity with him and their, with their uh, disobedient and wicked kings. And at this point, while in exile, the people could not reconcile the covenantal promises made to David with their current experience. From everything they could see, it appeared that God was not faithful to his covenant with David. But while in exile, while all hope appeared to have been lost, the prophets brought the Davidic promises back into view as they pointed the people by faith to a future king who would be obedient. And this is what was preached to them while they were in exile through the prophet Jeremiah. Since Jeremiah 33, uh, verse 14 through 16, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That's what they heard while in exile. God, by the word of the prophet, uh, he resolves the apparent tension between the promises and the requirements of the Davidic covenant. He gives them hope of a new king who would be righteous. And as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. He would also represent them in righteousness. He would be their righteousness. And so when our psalm in Psalm 2 speak about the blessed man, who is also the begotten son and king, borrowing the language of Psalm 2, who is altogether unlike the wicked, and who meditates on the law like the kings were supposed to, day and night, it perfectly fits the hope that the people of God have in exile. That one day a righteous branch would spring from David, who would obey the law as their king, and bring blessing and salvation to his people. Jesus is that blessed man and that righteous king. The New Testament witness makes this clear. Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the law perfectly. Before Christ's baptism, he told John that it needed to happen in order to fulfill all righteousness. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He said in John 6 that I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is why theologian, uh, Old Testament theologian Chad Bird said that this psalm could be rightly understood uh, as saying, blessed is the man who meditates on the teaching of his father. Christ meditated on the scriptures day and night because he was the righteous branch from David who would represent his people in righteousness and sit on the throne forever. So he was sinless. And as the messianic king, he was obedient. And now we'll look at verse 3 and see that because he was obedient, he was also prosperous in his work of redemption. 
Look at verse 3. It says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. This blessed man is like a tree. You have to remember that this is poetry. So he's not a tree, but he's like a tree. And the question is, what tree is he like? A lot of commentaries on this text look to the natural uh, world to kind of fill out this analogy. Right? They see in nature that a tree planted by streams of water are strong. Uh, their roots go deep and its foundation is steady. And so they make the application that the man who meditates on the scriptures is like a strong, immovable tree with a solid foundation. And I think that's uh, true, right? There's truth there. It's not inappropriate to do that when the psalm says, the Lord is my shepherd. Understanding what a shepherd does can be helpful in, that, in understanding what that uh, biblical truth is uh, communicating. But I think it's also important not just to look to the natural world to fill out analogies, but to look at uh, what the Bible as a whole has to say about the language that you see here. When you hear about a tree surrounded by streams of water that bears fruit and its leaves never, with, never wither, then your mind runs to another place in the scriptures where there's a garden, a blessed man, rivers, and a tree of life. This imagery takes us back to the beginning in Eden. And John Gill uh, said in his commentary on Isaiah 65, he said this, The tree of life was typical of Christ, who is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon him. Now how did John Gill come to that conclusion? Well, let's think about what the tree of life meant. A.W. Pink said that the tree of life in Eden was a sacrament, meaning a visible sign of a sacred uh, promise or a sacred thing. And so what was the tree of life a visible sign of? Well, it was a visible sign of the promise of life. It was a visible sign of eternal, glorified life. It's important to understand that God... Uh, gave Adam uh, life in creation, but the life that he was given was not eternal life. Now, how do we know that? Uh, well, because he had the ability to sin and die. That's not eternal life. That's not what we have in heaven. When God placed Adam in the garden by way of covenant, he gave him the ability to better his estate by his obedience. If he obeyed, then he would have the right to come to the tree of life and live forever and would be confirmed and established in that glory. But until that happened, the life that Adam had in the garden was unstable or it was mutable because he had the ability to sin against God and die. And that is exactly what happened. We read in Genesis 3.23 what, uh, what God said to Adam after he fell. Oh, sorry, Genesis 3.22, he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. I believe this text shows us that Adam had not yet taken of this tree. 
in the covenant of works, Adam had the ability to be granted the right to the tree of life. It was accessible to him if he obeyed upon that uh, fulfillment of that condition. But when Adam broke the covenant by sinning against God, his ability to gain that right was utterly lost. And we see that reality uh, in what God says to him next when he distances himself or Adam and alienates him from the tree of life in Genesis 3.24. It says, so he drove the man out. And at uh, the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. After Adam, uh, Adam's sin, eternal life represented by the tree was out of reach. It was not attainable for man any longer. Glory or glorification, which is eternal life in fellowship with God, is not possible for sinners. I think this is in view when the scriptures say in Romans 3.23 that all men fall short of the glory of God. All men, because of our sin, will not be glorified in heaven. And so this brings us back to the John, John Gill quote. How was the tree of life, which was a visible sign of the promise of the eternal glorified life that Adam could have had the right to if he obeyed? How is that tree typical of Christ? Well, Romans 3.23 says, All men fall short of the glory of God, but Hebrews 2.10 says, Christ brings many sons to glory. Christ grants to his people the right to the glorified life that the tree of life represented. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I'll turn to Revelation 22. We looked at the tree of life at the beginning, and now I want to uh, look at it at the end. Now, if you are unconvinced that the tree of life is typical of Christ or showing showing us what Christ would ultimately do. Uh, if you don't see it in the beginning in Eden, um, and if you're not convinced that it's in our psalm, then you have to see it in Revelation 22. It's somewhat required, I would say. So Revelation 22, verse 1, says this, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And now skip down to Revelation 22:14, which shows us how it's possible for us who once fell into sin and, her, and who were removed from the tree of life and barred from entering back in, it shows us how we may come. It says uh, in 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a, the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. But then we see in verse 15 that those who are still in their sins, those who have not washed their robes, have no right to come. Verse 15 says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. 
we see, see here that those who are still in their sins have no right to come to the tree of life. Sinners had no right to be in Eden, and they have no right, uh, they will have no right to be in the heavenly Jerusalem. In the end, just like in the beginning, the promise uh, or securing of eternal life um, represented by the tree is for those who are perfectly righteous. But this is the gospel, that if we take refuge in Christ by faith, the wages of our sin have been paid for, and the obedience required for righteousness has been acquired. And because our robes have been washed, we have the right to come to the tree of life. Just like the analogy of the tree takes us all the way to the glorious end that we have waiting for us as believers, the psalmist then transitions to the future of the wicked. Verse 4 says, The wicked are not so. And this is saying that the wicked, unlike the blessed man, are not sinless, uh, they're not obedient, and they're not prosperous. They do everything the blessed man does not do. They take their counsel from the wicked. They stand in the path of sinners, and they sit in the seat of scoffers. They altogether are unlike the blessed man and are in opposition to him. And the description of their hostility to Christ continues into Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the wicked peoples devising or meditating in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In the New Testament, Acts 4.27 applies this text to those who took, took counsel against Christ. It, it says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant. Who was gathered together? Um, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So who in Psalm 2 took counsel against God and against his anointed? It's those people. Uh, It's those who uh, were in opposition to Christ. But God responds in Psalm 2 when he says that he who sits in heaven laughs. The wicked will not be successful or prosperous, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. And that's why Psalm Uh, 1 verse 5 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Pilate and the mobs judged Christ but he is risen and seated at the right hand of of the Father and they will not stand in the judgment. And this applies not just to them but to all uh, of those who are apart from Christ. Everyone who does not take refuge in the Son will die in their sins and be separated from all those who God has made righteous through His Son. And then in verse 6, the psalm ends by saying, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this part reminds me of when Jesus was preaching. Uh, sorry, this part reminds me of uh, when Jesus was preaching a sermon on uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He's saying that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's a similar passage where he says the opposite. I I never knew you, right? And so I want to go there and consider consider that for a second. 
I believe that the, the context of Matthew 7, Jesus was confronting the teaching of the self-righteous Pharisees. And when the Pharisees meditated on the scriptures, they saw themselves as righteous men. And they had the expectation that when the Messiah came, he would be their political leader who would destroy all the wicked, right, who opposed them. They were the wicked, but they saw the Messiah as coming to destroy the wicked. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, with the self-righteous in mind, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. And then he says, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Now I know what's going on in some of your minds right now. You're thinking, see, there it is. To some extent, our faithfulness will be examined in the end. And if we don't produce enough of it, then he will say to us at the end that he never knew us. But what does Jesus mean when he says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, and especially this last part, but the one who does the will of my father? What does that mean? Well, John 17 helps us with this. In John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples all of his disciples, which includes us. It's commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. And he says in verse 6, as he's praying to the Father, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, and they have kept your word. I remember years ago, I was on a plane, uh, plane ride, this is before we had kids, and I read through the whole Gospel of John in, in one sitting, and I remember coming across that and saying, the disciples have kept your word. And just pausing and saying, no, they haven't. This doesn't make, this doesn't make sense. Now, when you think about this for a second, if you interpret Jesus as meaning that his disciples have been faithful in all that they did, then that wouldn't be true, would it? It wasn't Peter there the one who was about to deny him three times. And that's why it's important to understand that when Jesus said to his disciples, or when he said that about the disciples, that they had kept his word, he was not appealing to their faithfulness, but to their faith in him. Jesus clarifies what he means in verse 8, when he says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. When Jesus says his disciples kept God's word, he means that they received the testimony of the Father concerning his Son. When the Father said during Christ's uh, baptism, he said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The disciples heard this and believed it. So how do you know as a Christian that God will not say to you at the end, depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. This is, this is how. You believe in the testimony of the Father about his Son. You take refuge in him by faith. John six forty says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, God's judgment is certainly coming upon all the wicked. Right? Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 makes that clear. 
Psalm 1 verse 5 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. His judgment upon the wicked is certain. But look at how Psalm 2 ends. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Just like Moses was hidden in the rock when God's holiness passed before him on Mount Sinai. And just like when God came in judgment upon Egypt in the 10th plague, and he passed over those whose doors were covered with the blood of the lamb. Likewise, for believers, as the wrath of God falls upon the ungodly, we are hidden in Christ and covered with his blood. When our psalm, Psalm 1, ends by saying, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What is the way of the righteous? Romans 1.17 says that the righteous shall live by faith. We apprehend Christ by faith in the gospel. And he knows the way of the righteous because he made the way. Right? He is the way. And then it says... Uh, that the way of the wicked will perish. Well, what is the way of the wicked? Psalm 2.12, again, helps explain that the way of the wicked is, do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way. The wicked perish in the way of the wicked because they do not take refuge in Christ. Those who do not take refuge in Christ should fear and tremble at the fact that he whom they have rejected has been installed as king forever. And anyone who approaches the throne of God, trusting in their own righteousness, saying, Lord, Lord, look at what I have done, he will certainly say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. But for those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, for he has provided it in all that he does. He prospers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful to be uh, associated in fellowship with uh, believers who desire to know your word and desire to think uh, upon it and meditate on it. Um, Because in your word, you convict us by your law and you comfort us with your gospel. Um, But Lord, I pray that we would understand that uh, we, uh, our comfort is in the fact, uh, or our comfort is not in what we have done, but in whom we know. I pray that we would cling to Christ by faith. I pray that you would use the ministry of the word to increase our faith. Lord, and I pray that as we uh, now go to the table, Um, that you would increase our faith through all of the means that you've given your church, including the word and the sacraments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.